Hey friends, Ashton here, and welcome back to another episode of Good, True, and Beautiful. Hope you and yours are doing well. The summer, summer's here. It's hot. Uh, we're all trying to figure out where are we, what's happening, where's it all going. Hopefully it's going somewhere good, true, and beautiful. We are joined today uh, with a new friend. I picked up his book. I found him on Twitter, of all places, and uh, saw that he was a guy that's kind of having... Uh, and carrying the conversation that we've all been having here for a long time about meaning and uh, finding depth in our lives and uh, finding it through means of practice and discipline and ritual. He just released a book called The Power of Ritual. Um, his name is Casper Turkile, and uh, I think he's going to be a new friend of ours. So I'm excited to get to hear uh, his story and what he's doing in the world and chat a little bit about his book, The Power of Ritual. So with that being said, Casper joining us from New York. How's it going? Thanks so much, Ashton. Glad to be on the show. Absolutely. So you and I were kind of chatting a little bit before the call, but um, you're in New York City. I, I, for some reason, I felt you thought you were in Cambridge, but maybe New York for now. I, yeah, I, I lived in Cambridge for seven years. We actually just moved down from uh, from from the Boston area six months before COVID hit. So, okay. we, you know, we really chose our time well. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. So um, you, you said, you know, off script here that you're kind of getting into this new normal. Um, mm. Maybe for some of us that, uh, you know, weren't there at uh, this, the onset of COVID in New York, what's it like there today? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, this was such such a, a hot spot, you know, that really the center ground for for COVID, even globally, um, certainly after Wuhan. So, to to sit here now and kind of see other places, uh, mm. especially where you are in Texas, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's a sad uh, feeling just because I felt like we we learned the lesson uh, in a painful way, and and obviously. <laughs> It wasn't wasn't picked up everywhere, yeah, but um, yeah. uh, I'm I'm very grateful that you know I've had many friends who who've been sick, but but luckily no one who's passed. Um, so uh, yeah, most mostly grateful and uh, and sweaty faced by mask wearing. <laughs> that's 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 the enduring state. Yeah, I bet so, <laughs> I bet so. So um, I, I I am new to kind of your work in the world, and and I mm. found your book and thought um, it was a beautiful read and kind of a, a narrative and conversation that. I've been having for many years, maybe for some of our folks that are listening that haven't crossed paths with you and your work in the world, when you kind of set the tone of what you do and, and, and that work in the world, where do you begin? That's a great, <laughs> that's a great <laughs> question. Well, there's two ways of answering it, and, and I'll go for the narrative answer, which is to say that I grew up in England, uh, so I was born in London, uh, but both my parents are Dutch, so I had uh, grew up speaking speaking Dutch at home in England, um, and you know we were a non-religious family. We we didn't go to church. I didn't know anyone who was religious. Holland, I think, is maybe the the, the most secular country together with Denmark <laughs> in the world, and so religion was just pretty absent uh, from my childhood, at least in its formal shape. Um, but I went to a school called a Waldorf school, a Steiner school. And, um, this kind of model of education is very nature based. And, you know, we, we would, we would go and sing to cows on Christmas Eve (laughs) at the local farm. We would, you know, dig, uh, uh, into the, uh, into the earth and put a a cow horn filled with cow dung and then dig it up 12 months later, you know, to, to use as compost. So there were all of these really interesting rituals and, and, and traditions, um, that didn't have a kind of religious or spiritual name. But when I look back at them now, I'm like, oh, wait, this is super interesting. Um, So the interest in in my work is always about how 
the religious or the, or the spiritual life or practices um, show up in in uh, unexpected secular contexts. Mm. Um, so in my uh, kind of academic work at Harvard Divinity School, um, I co-wrote a paper with my colleague, Angie Thurston, um, called How We Gather. And we were looking at secular communities that seem to be a place where more and more people who were not officially religious were going to do the kinds of things that you would expect to see in a congregation. So, uh, you know, people approaching their fitness instructor to ask them how to navigate uh, a divorce, um, people hosting a wedding or a, a funeral uh, in a CrossFit box, mm. um, people thinking about a fan community um, as a kind of a, a pilgrimage site when they gather for a convention, right? So all of these really interesting parallels between the secular world and and ancient religious practices, uh, and so my work is is always kind of navigating this ancient wisdom, contemporary application uh, uh, connection. Beautiful, beautiful. And so, and I'm gonna I may botch this a little bit here, so forgive me. <laughs> um, Ministry Innovation Fellow at mm. Harvard Divinity School. I want you to give me the little cliff notes of what that was in your story, and then follow up with this Sacred Design Lab. Um, yeah. that you co-founded. I'm super interested to hear about that. So let's start with Ministry Innovation Fellow at Harvard Divinity School. Well, Ashton, I'll tell you a secret, which is <laughs> when, when uh, so Angie and I were both students, you know, both of us were kind of unexpected candidates for a divinity school. Um, and, and Harvard Divinity School is a little unusual. It's not a traditional seminary in that you, you know, you're only there with other Methodists or Catholics or, or whatever it is. It's a very... Um, uh, 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 the student body comes from a whole sweep of different contexts. So I had classmates who were Jewish and Muslim and Buddhist and, and you know, every stripe of, of Christian that you could find. But I also had uh, students sitting next to me who were herbalists or who said, well, I'm both Presbyterian and Catholic or who said, you know, I'm training to be a yoga teacher or, or whatever it was. So it was a very stimulating academic environment in which, in which to study because you had such difference in the classroom. Mm. And Angie and I ended up uh, writing this paper, How We Gather, and, and we ended we ended up uh, receiving some funding. And so uh, because our work was aligned with the mission of the school, the dean said, you know what, if you raise some money, you can stay. So uh, we created our own jobs is the answer <laughs> to your question. <laughs> I love it. Um, hashtag job creator. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, but, the, but the truth is it, it really allowed us an extremely unique position in which we could be engaging with the outside world, but drawing on the resources of a you know incredible university system like Harvard. And and it's been it's been a, a, a wonderful experience to try and bring some of the the insight and learning and knowledge of the professors who I learned from um, into kind of real world practical application, uh, you know, outside of the school environment. And one thing led to another and, and slowly people started asking our help with, you know, how, how do we translate these ancient practices, right? How can you help people um, gather in song or how can you make meaning around a shared text or um, what does it mean to, to do theological reflection? Um, uh, in an app for, for new activists, for example. Uh, so, we, so we had people coming to us asking for our help, and we ended up setting up an organization which we've called Sacred Design Lab, which does some consulting um, uh, around this work, but also continues our own research and thinking and writing. Um, so we call it an R&D lab for the spirituality, uh, for the future of spirituality uh, uh, and community. 
50 in the United States. So that gets to be my job, which when I say it out loud, I'm still like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Who let me do that? Yeah, that's beautiful. I love it. So this, this um, I guess, consultant work that maybe you guys do, where what all has that branched out? Like, is that business? Yeah. Is that... 501c3 churches talk to me about kind of where that the fingers are kind of moving through with with sacred design lab all of the above Hmm. and you know we've had conversations to be like oh you know should we focus on this sector or that sector and and honestly the thing we've learned over and over again is that it's really about the quality of relationship and alignment with an individual leader that makes everything possible. So we're doing one large project with the Wellbeing Trust, which is a healthcare foundation, um, trying to help them figure out what spiritual well-being might mean in a healthcare context. Um, we're working with uh, a couple of large tech firms, uh, helping them think through about the future of their physical buildings. So especially in a COVID world, hmm. um, you know, as more and more people work from home, what are going to be the kind of spaces that employees might want to have access to, to feel connected to to one another, but also to the kind of meaning and purpose of the shared mission. So, um, you know, talking to architects, working with uh, with people working on on you know real building plans to say, you know, maybe we won't need 60% of this building to be for desk space. Maybe we're going to need a sort of temple of inspiration, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we're going to need spaces. For, for people to meet outside. Uh, and, and instead of having meeting rooms, we're going to have paths that you can walk around, um, you know, uh, uh, for, a, for a 45 minute window um, <laughs> that you can have a, a safe but um, creative conversation with someone. So some of it is really trying to kind of expand people's imagination for what's possible, drawing on this ancient uh, uh, wisdom. But then, as you said, some of the, the work we do is also with religious partners. So we're embarking on a project with a, with a mainline uh, Christian denomination to, to really help them think about what is the future of their tradition outside of a congregational context. So if we don't assume the center of religious community is going to be a congregation, what is it going to look like? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm definitely not telling you that I have the answers, but I, 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 what we do do is kind of spot where we think some interesting ideas are happening. Some of them will using technology in an interesting way. Some of them are organizing small groups in an interesting way. Others are at the center of justice work. So um, it, it, it's often really about kind of trying to, to look for signals is the futurist language. What are the signals of the future that are already here, but they're not equally distributed yet? Beautiful. You do have a fun job, by the way. Um, <laughs> that is very cool. So, um, well, let's talk about the power of ritual, because that's kind of uh, how I was introduced to you. Um, and somebody must have retweeted it or posted it and said, you got to buy this book. Um, and I am all about discipline, ritual, routine, and uh, yes. different things. So where do we begin? Like, why, why this book and why now? How, how did it come to you? Well, the, the kind of the, the, the context in which the book is written is these two simultaneous trends. One is the disaffiliation from religious institutions, especially in the United States, of younger people. So more and more young people are less and less traditionally religious. At this point, it's 40% of millennials in the US. We expect that number to maybe even reach 50 for Gen Z. Of course, they're only up to age, I think, 22 now, so they're still very young. Um, which is a major sea change if you think about the history of of American religion, just in a couple of generations. Um, And so more and more people 
are not necessarily anti-religious or, or even atheist, but they find themselves spiritually curious, seeking, you know, generally kind of nothing in particular, but, but they, they don't have a home or, or, a, or a community with which to explore those questions and experiences with. So sometimes we use the language of, of, of a growing number of people being kind of spiritually homeless. So that's the first trend. And then the second trend is the growth of loneliness and social isolation. So the more and more of us who feel disconnected, uh, a, a sense of alienation, perhaps a sense of disconnection, not just from people, but also from place and from story and history. Um, so those two trends really force me to, to, to want to tell a, a story in the book about how people can find connection in a way that is uh, informed by tradition, but really starts with the everyday experience that people have. So I, I talk about kind of four levels of connection in the book, connecting with yourself, one another, the natural world, uh, and the transcendent. And for each one, I look at the kind of things that people are already doing, whether it's reading their favorite book, whether it's taking the dog for a walk, whether it's cooking a favorite meal, right? All of these everyday habits that we have. And then I try and bring in some wisdom from theologians and, and religious uh, wisdom teachers who can help us kind of bring those practices into a deeper level of, as you say, kind of commitment and grounding so that they shape us. And I think this is one of the things that's really important to me as I learned more and more about ritual was that rituals aren't decorative, right? They're not just there to make life pleasant. Uh, but I love that you have the, the, you know, the title of the podcast, Beauty, because they do make life more yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And they are, they're not just decorative, they are, they are formative, mm. right? So they shape us in a way. And I think this is one of the things that maybe is, is absent in a lot of our everyday life and kind of mainstream dominant culture um, is that we, we live with a pervading sense of that the way we engage with the world is through consuming it, right? What you buy, what you consume. And that these rituals offer us a chance to practice a different way of living. Um, it's one of my favorite ways of thinking about ritual is that is that it's kind of a, a practice ground for a different world, right? That we and the world around us can be different in that in that moment that we practice it. Um, whether that's, you know, communion, where, where we're literally sharing uh, and remembering the idea of being one body, um, or if it's, you know, a, a, a different kind of practice. So that that's really my hope is that, that readers will find opportunities to turn the things they're already doing every day, but deepen them and, 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 and enrich them and start to see them as rituals. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the phrases I, I like to use a lot is ritual done well, or when ritual resounds within you uh, and you kind of, mm. you kind of get in on the joke. Um, this is when the mundane becomes magic. Mm. The, the, this is when all of a sudden it's, you're not just making a cup of coffee. Like there's right. a, there's a lot more going on here. You're not just making dinner with your family. You're not just taking a walk around the block. It is a, it's almost it, it it's kind of the doorway into this panoramic view yes. of what it means to be human. Um, well, let's chat through these four because I think just if if I'd love to just kind of riff with you a bit on um, the self, others, nature, and transcendent. Kind of walk through. Um, yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to steal thunder from the book. Everyone needs to go <laughs> buy it. But I, I'd love to just chat through some of this. You know, Parker J. Palmer is one of our village elders mm. here oh, at, yes. at the podcast, and um, so anytime the soul versus role conversation comes up, <laughs> um, oh, it's a good one. <laughs> we have to. We must pay homage to uh, PJP. And um, so, talk to me about connecting with the self, and that was really. 
Um, of all the chapters, the one that I love the most, probably because I just love the ritual. Um, but talk to me about how ritual can, it can be a great way to separate from that ego self, the false self. It can be something that grounds you in your essence to where you can experience the soul of who you are versus the role, which is mm-hmm. found on Twitter and where you go to work and all those different things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm so glad to know that that uh, Parker is a, a part of this podcast's kind of healthy, healthy spiritual life, because I, I just think he's got an extraordinary way of teaching and and honestly modeling this in 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 such a powerful um powerful way so absolutely giving giving him so much uh honor and appreciation the the way in which i was thinking about practices that help us kind of reconnect with that I use the language of authenticity in the book, that sense of an authentic self, which, you know, for any Buddhist listening, that's a whole different conversation. So we'll, we'll, we'll put that to one side. But, but the idea of returning to who we really are at our essence, rather than exactly, as you said, how, who we perform ourselves to be. And I, and I don't want to say that that performance is inherently bad, but I think the challenge, uh, as Parker Palmer teaches us, is when we confuse the two or when we assume that they are the same um, and, and that we're not able to step back from the performance and, and embrace, you know, who we are. So the, the, the practice that I have honestly been most impacted by personally is, uh, the practice of a tech Sabbath. Um, yep. and for me, you know, I'm a, I'm a real Enneagram three. And so let's go let's, yeah. we're together. We're one in the same. <laughs> <laughs> just give me an email inbox and I'll crush it. You know, like yeah. I, 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 the idea of like leaving something unfinished to stop because I have to is just terrifying. Um, and so I, I always really felt very strangely about the idea of Sabbath. But reading Abraham Joshua Heschel, you know, great 20th century rabbi, theologian, teacher, one of the things that really shifted my understanding of this particular practice of Sabbath was that it is not a time of preparation and recovery and recharging batteries, right? It's it's not about getting ourselves ready to continue the work. The work is itself a time of preparation for the Sabbath Hmm. because it is, in his language, a palace in time that we get to enter um, in Jewish tradition for those 25 hours because they add the extra hour because it's so delicious they don't want to leave. And so (laughs) I adapted because I'm I'm not Jewish. And and so, you know, through much learning and and conversation with, with Jewish friends and teachers, what I started to do was on Friday nights to turn off my phone and my laptop as it became dark and to, I literally hide, uh, you know, the tech behind a bookshelf because if I see it, it's the end. Um, and I light a little candle and I stand in my living room and I sing a song that I learned in summer camp. And in my mind, what happens uh, is that I enter into into Sabbath time. And for me, I, you know, I often put on social media just before I do this, you know, the work is not done, but it is time to stop. And it's the only way that I can kind of interrupt that role, <laughs> that, mm, yep. that, that striving. And what emerges in my experience, Ashton, is that during that, that time of Sabbath, there's something very tender that emerges. You know, I, I, like I was never very good at art as a kid. I have three sisters who were fabulous artists. I mean, literally one of them is an illustrator. The other one creates Etsy products like they, they're legit. And so I was always very embarrassed about anything creative that I made. But in that time of Sabbath, there's something 
sweet and 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 kind of childlike that emerges in that sometimes I write a poem or I'll sing a song or I'll you know uh, get out my pastels and <laughs> start mm-hmm. drawing something and and it's it, there's just a spaciousness for a um, a humble creativity and and joy honestly that comes out in that time that for me is essential not just on my mental health but to a, a sort of spiritual rhythm in my life mm-hmm. that doesn't center just around you know, the, 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 the kind of good career things that happen, but that centers on that sense of, yeah, real a deep connection with, with who I am behind all of those performance pieces. Hmm. Now, I'm only asking for a friend here. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, curious about you, like what, what are the ways in which you kind of find a, an interruption for, yeah, for that striving? Because I mean, from one three to another, it never ends. Yeah, no, it doesn't. And, and uh, for, for, for years now, uh, and, and even last night, uh, I leaned over to my wife, Bryn, I was reading one of those Heschel quotes on Sabbath. And, mm. and it just, I was, I, I don't know, it was this weird rage, disappointment, sad, frustration, like just everything. Yeah. You know, I was like, why can I not grasp Sabbath? What is it? And I mean, I know why. It's that need to produce. <laughs> it's that need to yeah. do. Talk to me about the first time and the second time, and the third mm-hmm. time, because I feel like most of us in Western society mm-hmm. are probably going to fumble in this oh. step into, and I like, you're even when you and I were swapping emails, it's on your email that like, you go, hey, yeah. Friday at this time, I'm out, you're not hearing from me. Um, talk, I, I would love to hear kind of your training wheels or how you failed forward in this deal, because I think, um, I, you know, I got to avoid failure yes. at all cost as a three. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, no, a hundred percent. No, I mean, I literally, as you said, I put it in my email signature. Um, and you would not believe the number of people who've responded saying who I, you know, I might be booking a dentist appointment or something. People will respond and say, oh, I've got to try that out. I really want to try that out. Um, so th- I think there is something in our culture, which is just like, we are at breaking point. You know, this is just, we, we, can't, we can't keep going like this. Um, so af- affirming that uh, experience. And one of the ways in which I, I kind of built, I guess, a little bit of accountability for myself was telling people that I was doing this practice because then, you know, I couldn't secretly get on email and email them, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I, I mean, I've been doing it six years now. Wow. Um, I, I still struggle, especially with travel. Uh, if I'm not at home, if I'm not in my own space, it's extremely difficult to do in part because the embarrassing reason is that I need like Google maps to help right. figure out where I'm going. Right. Yeah. So sometimes there's, there's just some, some, some real challenges in it. Um, and I, I, you know, I tried to create a, a sense of a personal rule of life, um, in while I was writing the book. And one of the things that I said is like, I will know that I'm really observing this Sabbath practice if I'm turning down, you know, exciting or, or lucrative offers, you know, of things to do on a, on a Saturday or a Friday night. Um, and the times when I have done that, oh, I feel so smug and self-satisfied. I can't tell you. Uh, <laughs> but all of that is to say it's still, you know, it's definitely a work in progress. I think some of the, some of the most beautiful moments for me of the practice, um, one was um, celebrating with, with Jewish friends. And, of course, they, they observe 
a, a, a very recognizable Jewish Sabbath, which is different from the way that that I do it. Um, but to enter it with, you know, with the explicit blessings um, and especially seeing how um, Jewish parents, often the father especially, will bless their child on a Friday night has been so moving to me because I have Jewish friends who will call their dad to receive their Sabbath blessing. Mm. Um, so there's just such a lovely, um, it's lo- a lovely intimacy to this yeah. practice which has really moved me. And I have some rabbi friends, Rabbi Sid Schwartz among them, who's, uh, you know, a generation older than me. Um, and, and very sweetly when I started really accompanied me, uh, and, and would give me a call on a Friday night now and then, and, and give me a blessing. So that, that was extremely moving. The final piece I'll say to this, which, you know, and it took me about four and a half years to ask him, but I asked my husband eventually, uh, instead of like scurrying and hiding and doing this practice kind of on my own, even though I'd leave the candle on and he knew exactly what I was doing. I finally asked him to join me. Um, and so he sings, he sings the song with me and, and we kind of enter into that time together, even though he doesn't have the same obsessions as I do and happily will, you know, keep his phone on through, through the day. Um, but that was a really, uh, I think important moment because it speaks to one of the consistent challenges that I think a lot of the people that I work with and maybe readers of the book might experience, which is a sense of a lack of spiritual confidence, hmm. um, a sense that the way in which we practice something or the way that we think about the world and maybe especially our spirituality is somehow not good enough or, or it's not, um, you know, it's not legitimate. Uh, and, and so one of the things I really try to do in the book is to, is to affirm people's spiritual practices, whatever they are, uh, and even if they don't necessarily use that language, um, but to then say, you know, we can think of these practices as spiritual practices, right? Snuggling your kids before bedtime, um, gardening, dancing, singing, right? All of those things are, in my in my view, really powerful spiritual practices if we approach them in that way. Yeah, yeah. Everything is spiritual. Um, yeah, no doubt. So, uh Next segment of the book, connecting with others. And this is really, you know, about friendship, community, um, which this has kind of been hard in COVID, has it not? Uh, I mean, I think we've all felt this at some degree. Um, Talk to me about the ritual of um, connecting with others. Yeah, so I I focused on on a couple of practices here. One was eating together. Yep. The other one was working out because some of the communities that I've studied that have been really most successful are fitness groups. Mm. Um, and uh, one of the things that's interesting for me that even still apply, honestly, at distance, if if to a slightly lesser degree, is that a lot of the community that's built around fitness communities is not necessarily because people have deep conversations with each other. Very often when we think about connecting with other people, it's about the, the stories we share, right? And, and, the, and the conversations we have, which, have makes, which makes sense. But one of the most powerful ways that we can feel connected to a group is through shared physical movement. And so if you're in a spin class doing a sort of choreography together, um, if you're, uh, you know, on, on, a, on a soccer pitch playing together, or if you're lifting weights and doing a, you know, a high intensity workout, whatever it is, there, but it's purposely being done together, it could be a really amazing uh, a tool for kind of building a mm-hmm. sense of communal identity. A friend of mine who does conflict resolution will have a group that's in conflict just two-step together for like half an hour before they sit down to talk. And it is remarkable how effective those kind of embodied practices are. So the point I'm trying to make is that even during COVID, 
if we are practicing the same sort of physical movements while we're away from one another at the same time, a sense of kind of imagined community is really powerfully created. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, even, even the act of, for example, reciting the Lord's Prayer in one congregation on a Sunday morning, knowing that thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of other congregations doing the same thing, and globally, right, maybe not exactly at the same hour, but at least on the same day, there's, there is an experience of being part of something bigger, a, a group that's bigger than ourselves, people who we, we have never met, but nonetheless we feel connected to, that's incredibly powerful. Um, so it, it's been interesting to see how, you know, we can translate some of these practices into, a, into a, an online context. Yeah. Uh, and not just by putting a video camera in front of what we were already doing, but trying to be innovative and more creative about the ways in which we can still feel connected to each other. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's synchronicity is the word That's right. that I was kind of feeling as you were going through all that. Um, That's right. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, nature. Is this, is this where we channel our inner St. Francis? Talk to me. <laughs> talk, talk to me about nature. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little inside boy. So this is the chapter I really struggle with personally. It's like, if I'm going to choose the couch or like, you know, some mountain biking trail, I'm choosing a book on the couch. Um, so, um, yeah, th this is a, this is one where I really drew on the practice of pilgrimage. Mm. Um, I, I was so inspired by a couple of friends in the UK who set up a, an organization called the, the British Pilgrimage Trust, where they're trying to reopen these ancient, um, uh, kind of travel pathways uh, that were really a, a rich part of Britain's history until the dissolution of the monasteries, until Henry VIII uh, and uh, and his uh, great right-hand man, <laughs> Thomas Cromwell, kind of shut down the, uh, the, the religious infrastructure of 16th century England. But um, these friends are, are starting to kind of reopen these pathways from church to church to church on these great pilgrim routes. And I was lucky enough to join them for a day uh, around uh, Oxford. Um, and one of the things that I loved so much about the way in which uh, they both approached the landscape was that they didn't see themselves as kind of human beings that were, you know, having a nice walk in nature, but they really understood themselves as being part of nature. Mm. And I think this is, this is the big switch that I'm really interested in uh, in part because as a young person, I was really involved as a climate change activist. And so trying to move us from a from a, a perspective where we see ourselves as, as separate from nature, where you know nature is a resource for us to use, to actually remind ourselves that we are part of nature. And when we are, you know, whether it's burning down a rainforest or, or, or you know, spilling oil in an ocean, that, that it's not happening out there, but that it's we are part of what's happening. Mm. Um, and, and once you see the world in that way, which is hard to do sometimes, but when we get into that mindset, the kind of choices we make completely changes. Um, and so that practice of pilgrimage, of engaging with the land that you're in and among, uh, you know, which for them included, you know, kissing a shrine, making herbal tea with, you know, plants that you pick up on the way, uh, drinking the water from a well, um, you know, touching touching the grass with your hands. And it's a very multi-sensory experience of the world. Um, and so I love that idea of trying to integrate 
you know, just little bits of that in uh, a small, you know, walk around the neighborhood, even if it's as simple as stopping to smell the proverbial roses, right? Or yeah. just noticing the beauty of a color or really listening to the to the sound of a passing bird, that those are all ways in which we can shift our attention away from, you know, us being separate from nature to us being part of nature. Yeah. Yeah, totally. We leave, we leave every episode with this like benediction, pause by the orchid, listen to the bluebird sing and be loved. Yes. Um, yes, I love that Ashton. So we uh yeah, so yeah, I was I was dialed in with you on that chapter. Um <laughs> and it is. I, I think the the nature conversation was so helpful to me in that kind of I, thou, Martin Buber, you know, the, that's the, right. the um, sub, that's when things become subject to subject. That's um, right. At least speaking from my own experience, that um, when I learned the conversation that beauty was wanting to have with me, mm. um, nature then was the doorway to my neighbor and then to my business interaction and then what it was i was able to see the hidden wholeness in all of it there it is Mm -hmm. another parker j palmer show so um and then you end with like conversation around transcendence and man are we not all coming at this word and the divine and really trying to Mm -hmm. name what is not nameable (laughs) um talk to me about um your heart behind kind of grounding and transcendence through the power of ritual. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why I love the, you know, the Muslim practice of reciting the 99 names of God. Um, this, this idea that there are, you know, a hundred words and yet no words mm-hmm, that right. can describe that, that, yep. that idea, that experience. So, you know, knowing that for a lot of people, a relationship with God or, or, you know, that sense of something bigger than ourselves is complex at best. Um, (laughs) I I was really interested in thinking about the practice of prayer and to not see prayer as I'd always imagined it to be as kind of a magical jukebox in the sky, right? You know, make, make your requests, put your dollars here. That's the end. But, but to really understand the ritual practices that sit within that category of prayer and, um, one of one of the practices that really has inspired my own life and and uh, my kind of imagination was was from a Muslim friend uh, and a woman involved with leading the the women's mosque of uh, of America in L.A. Um, where you know in, in in experiences of Muslim prayer it's a very embodied practice and of course we have that tradition in Christianity as well but often it's a little bit sidelined you know maybe it's a it's a small moment of kneeling um, when of course the early Christians. Uh, you know, did not put their hands in the kind of classic prayer pose, but actually stood with their arms to the side, with their palms facing forward. Uh, uh, That was the traditional Mm -hmm. practice of prayer. So physical movement has always been part of of these prayer traditions. But I first experienced it in in a context of Muslim prayer. And so thinking about, um, you know, a, a moment for me that's really powerful in my kind of meditation prayer practice, which is basically naming all the shitty things I've done uh, and not done. Um, and so in that, that time of confession, for me, it's been incredibly helpful, especially when words aren't coming, to put my body in a pose of submission. Um, so with, with my forehead on the ground, my, my hands uh, out in front of me. Um, and, and so it's a moment of humility. Um, and often by moving my body, 
something comes out linguistically that maybe was a little tied up before in mm. terms of acknowledging the places, at least the places I know where I've fallen short. And so for me, it was a really different way of engaging that practice of confession, which which sometimes can feel a little performative mm -hmm. <laughs> going back to our conversation before. Um, and, and it felt, it, this felt very intimate and very, um, you know, there's also something just physically nice about being in child's pose. So it was kind of like a coming home yeah. to, to that physical pose in which then also uh, I felt like my heart could unburden itself. Um, and so thinking of that as one of the practices within prayer to kind of make a, a holistic prayer life, um, that, that, I don't know, my, my experience of confession is that then you feel, I don't want to say washed clean, but certainly integrated mm -hmm. in, in, in the context of something bigger than ourselves, uh, which some people call God. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, man, well, I can say um, for our listeners, it's definitely, if you've hung around Good, True, and Beautiful podcast for a while, this is a book you need to pick up um, <laughs> because it will... Uh, it'll pour some gasoline on a lot of the dialogues that we've been having for a long time. And um, it's, uh, it's a beautiful work. I hope you're happy with what it's doing in the world. Um, oh, thank you. And uh, super grateful that you put it out there. Um, I always ask some of our guests um, just a couple questions. Okay, if I can ask you these? Yeah, of course. So first one I always ask is this, what's currently keeping you curious? You know, I just bought a great book about the uh, the history of the Orthodox Christian Church. It's it's part of the Christian world that I don't know very well, okay. um, but it has uh, you know the tradition of icon making. Yep. I'm really excited to learn more about how engaging imagery as part of the liturgy uh, is a whole new set of practices to to learn about and mm. fall in love with. Hmm. Yeah, that whole idea that there was art before there was printing press. Yes. Um, well, and there was ritual before there was language. So, uh, you know, these, the, the goodies just keep coming. <laughs> there, was rich, <laughs> there was art before printing press. There was ritual before there was language. <laughs> um, the good news is Yahweh is the sound of our breath. So we'll just, we'll just leave it at that. Um, I always ask people this too. What advice would you give to your younger self? You know, I learned this the hard way, um, which is that all the best work I've done in the world has been co-creative. Um, and so the best advice I would have for myself is to find sooner than I did <laughs> that the people who I would make things with, um, the best advice I would give is, is to find people to make things with. Um, it, it, every time, you know, I've been in a, a collaboration that's been successful. It's, it's, it's more than the sum of its parts. It's not one plus one is two, but like one plus one is 27. So mm -hmm. something magical happens. Um, so that's, that's something I've really treasured. Beautiful, beautiful relationship. Um, yeah, it is, it is the, uh, gateway to mm. interesting things that are happening. Uh, have you ever read Dorothy Sayers, the mind of the maker? No, I need okay. to do it. Yeah, yeah, that that just triggered that for me. Okay, uh, it's r real like Trinitarian creative theology. Oh um, yeah, like the law of three. And sorry, we're getting into wonky stuff here, but um, it's, <laughs> I uh, love it. Yeah, check it out. Check it out. Um, well, man, I am super glad that I got to cross paths with you, and thankful for your work in the world. Um, P.S. You're welcome to come on anytime if you got something you want to share. 
Um, oh, Sacred Ashton. Design Lab. If anything cool has happened with Sacred Design Lab, let us know. Um, for our listeners, how can they follow you and uh, what you're doing in the world? Oh, I so appreciate that. Um, I, well, they can find me uh, at Casper TK. Uh, or the, uh, the the book website is powerofritual.org. Uh, and I have a newsletter, which I send every week kind of around these themes. So if you're interested in, uh, in staying in touch, please do. Beautiful. Well, uh, you know, we typically release these on Fridays. We're going to make sure all of our listeners are not listening on Friday. They're all going to be doing their technology Sabbath. Yes. <laughs> um, so just hit pause, listen to this Sunday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, but uh, yeah, man, thank you so much for coming on and uh, for your time and generosity today. Oh, Ashton, I so appreciate you and, and just grateful for the work that you're doing and the conversations that you're, you're having. Uh, I, I know uh, for the podcast world, you know, it, it's surprising how intimate it can be when you're listening to someone every week. So I, I know how many people appreciate you. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers, man. Appreciate it. 